Right, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, it's on page 960 if you've got one of our Bibles. And if you haven't been with us, we've been walking through this Gospel of Luke, which is essentially a letter from this guy, Luke, to his friend Theophilus, but he also writes it to us. And his whole purpose in writing this letter is really so that we would know and trust Jesus more, that we would know who he is, we'd be certain about who he is. And Luke, if you think about it, if you've been with us, he has gone to great length, lengths to show us that Jesus is not just this ordinary guy, that Jesus, from his miraculous birth to all of his teaching and, and what he said to, to the miracles that he did over and over, we see that Jesus is awesome, that he's, a, he's, a, I mean, he's bigger than anybody that you could possibly even think of. And today, in fact, last week, let's talk about last week. What did he do last week, if you remember? He fed 5,000 men and their families with just a few loaves of bread and a couple fish. I mean, talk about the power of God right there. And this week, he looks at his disciples, and he, he basically says that, look, after everything that you've seen, who do you say that I am? And kids, listen to me very carefully. There is not a more important question than that. You will never hear a more important question. You will never answer a more important question than who is Jesus. Now, if you've been raised in church, and, you, and you, you've been around the Bible for a while, you might be thinking, okay, I already know about Jesus. I know who he is. I know the answer to that question. But let me tell you, there's always more to learn. There is always more to learn. And, and often, and I want to make it very clear, <laughs> we need to get our information from this book, from the Bible. Often what happens is we, we go and we seek information about Jesus in all sorts of random places. And it's kind of like we, we very easily misidentify who Jesus is because we're looking in the wrong place. It's kind of, have, kids, have you ever like been in a store or someplace and you thought you were standing next to your mom or dad, but then you look up and it's, it's somebody else? I remember one of my earliest memories, I was in a bank and I'm, I'm just, I'm there with my mom and of course they give you the little sucker and so I'm sucking on the sucker and not really paying attention and there must have been this guy that had the same color pants as my mom and so I'm just standing by and it must have been a few minutes that I'm standing by this guy just sucking away on my sucker and then all of a sudden I hear my mom from across the room yelling for me and I look up at this guy and my eyes must have got like this big and I'm embarrassed because okay this is not my mom you're not even a girl, <laughs> and, and, and so I go and I cry and I run over to my mom, but often, and the reason I misidentified my mom is because I was looking in the wrong place, and often we do that too. We, we kind of, and this is our world, and you know this. I mean, people get all sorts of ideas about who Jesus is because they kind of pick and choose, and they go to, they go to like YouTube, right? And you, man, you can learn a lot from YouTube. My, our old house, I rewired our whole, uh, the basement when I was redoing the basement. Learn how to rewire the basement. You can learn how to fix a car on YouTube. Eli has figured out how to turn a piece of paper into just about anything by watching videos on YouTube. But if you're going to go and try to figure out who Jesus is by looking at YouTube, you're going to come up with all sorts of different ideas. But that's what we do. We essentially, we, we kind of pick and choose, okay, I like this about Jesus and I get it from over here, and I like this about Jesus, and so I, I think this is true about Jesus, and I get it from over here. And so we kind of compile who we think Jesus ought to be based on all these different ideas from all over the place, and we essentially come up with our, 
our own idea of Jesus. David Platt puts it really well. He says, when we do that, when we kind of pick and choose what we want to believe about Jesus from all these other sources, essentially what we're doing is we're creating Jesus in our own image. And so when we come in here on a Sunday morning, who are we worshiping in that point, at that moment? We're not worshiping the, the Jesus of the Bible. We're worshiping a Jesus made in our own image. And so essentially we're worshiping ourselves on Sunday mornings. And so we want to be careful not to do that. And so we need the Spirit's help. So let's go to him in prayer one more time before we dive into this passage. Father, it is so easy for us to see things that are not there in scriptures and, and, and to interpret the Bible in ways that make us feel better rather than seeing the truth of your word. And so I pray that your spirit would help protect us from that. Even now, help me to proclaim the truth and nothing but the truth. Help us to, I pray that you would open up our eyes to see how amazing your son is. I pray that you would help our hearts be softened, that our lives would not be the same, that we would, we would recognize who you are and what you've done for us, and it would cause us to reorient our whole lives around you and your mission for your glory and not our own. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to pick up in Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 18. And so he's just fed the 5,000. He turns to his disciples. Well, actually, before he turns to his disciples, look what happens in 18. Now, it happened that as he was praying alone... I want to just stop there for a minute because Luke, every time he points out that Jesus is praying, something significant is about to happen or has just happened. Think about it. The last few times Jesus has been praying, it's been like after he's been baptized and the heavens are about to open up and the, the Spirit is going to be descending on him and God the Father in his booming voice says, this is my son who I'm well pleased. Okay, it's in those kind of moments that that Jesus is praying. It's, a, it's in moments like right before he chooses the 12 apostles that he goes to the mountainside and spends all night praying because he's about to pick the 12 guys that are going to flip the world upside down. And so here in this moment, the fact that Luke points out that he was praying alone, something major is about to happen. And so you ought to pay attention. He prays again later on in this chapter, right before the transfiguration. And again, later on in Luke, you know, he, when he goes into the garden right before he's arrested, before the crucifixion, he's praying in those moments that are so significant in his life. And so right now, this is a significant moment. This is the most important question. Kids, the way that you answer the question, who is Jesus, will determine the rest of your life. Please, and I told my kids this last night, I said, don't, don't believe that if you've gone to church your whole life that you're going to be saved, Okay? Going to church your whole life does not mean that you're, but how you answer this question will determine not just your life here, but your whole eternity. And so pay attention to what Jesus says. He turns to his disciples that were with him, and he asks them first, he asks them two questions. The first one, he says, who do the crowds say that I am? In other words, who, who does the rest of the world say that I am? What are, they, what are people saying about me? And, he, and they answered him, well, they John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that you're one of the prophets of old has, have risen from the dead. And so the crowds 
recognize there's something special about Jesus, that he's not just an ordinary man, that maybe he's somebody that's risen from the dead, maybe he's a prophet of old, maybe he's a, a great teacher, but th there's something special about him, but they were still far off. They still didn't quite get it. They didn't, and that's today. I mean, people look at Jesus and they recognize, okay, very few people say, that, okay, Jesus never really existed, that he's just a story made up. Very, very, very few. In fact, no scholars believe that. There's way too much proof that he truly did walk on this earth. But there's a whole lot of people that look at Jesus and say, well, he, he was a good prophet. That's Islam. All of Islam looks at Jesus and says he's just a, he was a good prophet. He's a great prophet. Or they think that, man, he was a really good teacher. He revolutionized the world, but, but that's all he was. And they, they all fall short of who Jesus really is, who he claimed to be. Look at verse 20. This is... Uh, this is what um, Peter says. I'm sorry, this is what he asks, and then Peter replies to him. He says, then he says to them, but who do you say that I am? And so Jesus first asks, who does the world say that I am? And then he says, but who do you? And that word you is emphatic. He's saying, okay, there is some, the world is not right. I'm expecting a different answer from you. You've been with me. You know me. Who do you say that I am. Not a more important question that they will ever hear than we will ever hear in our lives. And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Now Peter tends to be the leader of the apostles. He's probably speaking for all of the apostles when he says that. The word Christ is the Greek translation of a Hebrew word that means Messiah or anointed one. And Peter's confession here, it shows that the disciples had come to believe that Jesus truly was this anointed one, that he was the one that for centuries and centuries, from the birth of human history, this is the guy that they've been waiting for. This is the guy that the Jews have been anticipating. This is the guy that would one, that, that was prophesied about that would one day reestablish God's reign on earth, I don't think it's possible to overestimate the significance of this moment. I mean, for all of human history, they've been anticipating. Peter's essentially saying that, look, this is the seed or the offspring that's mentioned in Genesis chapter 3, that you're, you're the prophecy that's going to that's come, the one that's going to come that's going to crush Satan's head. You're the blessing that Abraham is promised that will one day be a blessing to all nations. You're, you're the lion of Judah. You're the prophet that is promised to Moses in Deuteronomy. You're the, you're the king that is promised to David that's going to establish his throne forever. You're the, you're the one that Isaiah called Emmanuel, God with us. You're the, you're the son of man that Daniel promised. You're, you're just like John the Baptist said, you are the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. You are the great sacrifice that all the sacrifices in the Old Testament were pointing to. You're the great I Am. You're the, you're the Son of God. And so how did Peter and the disciples come to this conclusion? Well, I, I think a big reason is because they, they had spent so much time with Him. They had seen the miracles. They had seen Jesus speak and his, his, the way that he taught just blew their mind he said things that nobody else 
would say, his main message was what? The kingdom of God is at hand. Who talks like that? Unless you're the Messiah, unless you're the Christ, the Son of God. They saw him in this authority. The authority they had to, to calm the storm. He, the, the waves listened to him. The wind listened to him. The demons bowed down to him. He healed people. He rose people from the grave. He even had, he had this claim that he could forgive sins. So they had witnessed, they were eyewitnesses of this. And so they believed that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, God in the flesh, come to rescue and redeem and reign. And their lives would never be the same. I mean, if you come face to face with the Messiah, your life cannot, they're just not going to go back and to just being fishermen. Matthew's not going to go back and just be, I'm just going to go back to being a tax collector. They, they can't do that. There's no way they can possibly do that. If Jesus is who he says he is, if he truly is the Christ, they can't just, their whole lives were reoriented around Christ and his mission. And today, if we really believe what's in here, that Jesus truly is the Christ, we, our lives should change. We, we can't just go back and, and live the way we've always lived. We can't just look at Jesus from afar and admire him. We, can't we don't just come in here and kind of like pledge allegiance to Jesus like we would pledge allegiance to the flag. If Christ, if Jesus is truly the Christ and he is who he says he is, it demands that we would bow down and worship him as almighty God. Now, I want to spend a few minutes just kind of blowing up some of the reasons that people don't believe that Jesus is the Christ, because that, that's prevalent in our, our culture. And many people don't believe, and, that they, and I mentioned one earlier, is one is because they, they don't really know him, truly. They kind of pick and choose what they want to believe, and they don't know the true Jesus, and that's true. But I also think that there are some other reasons, and I think that as Christians, we ought to know some of those barriers, to, to why people don't believe who Jesus is for our own souls, but also so that we can, we can talk to others. And so there's a whole lot more that we could say about this, but let me, let me give you five reasons why people don't believe, and, and these are some of the barriers. One, and I think this is huge, it, it, that we live in a culture of relativism, a culture of relativism. And what I mean by that is that in our culture, this is the, the primary thought that, okay, you believe what you want to believe, and I'm going to believe what I want to believe, but don't you dare tell me what I should believe. That's the culture that, that we live in. But that doesn't jive what, with what we see about Jesus in the Bible. I mean, Jesus said things like, I am the way, the truth. I, nobody comes to the Father except through me. Our, our culture would not be okay with the way that Peter answered this question because Peter said you are the Christ they, they would be okay if Peter changed one word the to a you are a Christ or you are a savior you are a messiah that's what our world would be okay with but that just doesn't jive with what Peter says it doesn't jive with what Christ says Christ doesn't say I am a way to the father he says I am the way to the father C.S. Lewis wisely points out that 
There is no way, it, it is not logically possible for there to be multiple paths to salvation, to God. Uh, because you can't, he says that, look, either one is right or none of them are right, but they can't all be right because you can't have, salvation cannot come through Christ alone and also through following the five pillars of Mohammed. It just doesn't work. Relativism, just, it, it falls short, but it's prevalent and it's one of the barriers that we see why people don't believe in Jesus. Another barrier that we see and I, I see this often, is that people struggle believing in God because of the problem of evil. They look at our world and they see that there are just horrific things happening in our world. And so they say, how can there, how can there be a good God that is all-powerful and he allows these things? If he is all good and he's all-power, how, how can he allow all of these things to take place. And I think that the problem of evil is a little bit more difficult for us to deal with than relativism because there's an emotional aspect to it. I mean, we can come up with logical arguments why it is possible for evil to exist in a fallen world and God still to be good. But when somebody has experienced firsthand the evil in this world, it's hard for them to overcome it emotionally. Now, that being said, let me leave you just with three thoughts about the problem of evil First of all, think about this. If, if God, hypothetically, if God had just like chopped off the snake's head so that he would have never tempted Eve in the garden, or maybe God just said, okay, I'm not even going to create the tree of knowledge. There, there was no opportunity for the fall. What would that mean? What, what kind of world would we live in? Well, it would be a world that we would not know the depth of God's mercy. We would never know the depth of God's love for us. We would never know the depth of his grace. The cross would not be necessary. We would never be able to sing amazing grace because there would be no need for forgiveness. We would never know God in his fullness if there was not the possibility of evil in our world. Secondly, remember that God has not allowed you and he will never allow you to go through suffering or evil in this world that he wasn't willing to go through himself. In fact, none of us in this room will ever experience anything close to the amount of suffering that Christ was willing to go through on the cross for your sins. And then number three, as we look at the Bible, we see that God is sovereign, that he is in control, and that over and over, even though... Gosh, you see this in Scripture that over and over he uses the evil acts of man for his good purposes. And so God is not looking down and, and noticing, okay, every generation is getting worse and worse and worse. And we complain about this all the time, right? That, gosh, what are our, what are our kids going to have to grow up in? I don't think God is sitting on his throne looking down and saying, gosh, they, they messed up my plan again. Okay, how, how am I going to accomplish what I want to accomplish now. They keep messing it up. No, God is sovereign. And over and over we see that God uses the evil acts of men to accomplish his purposes, that no matter what we do, no matter how evil our world gets, it's not going to thwart God's will and God's plan. The best example of that is the cross. The most evil act in human history turns out to be this for the salvation of many. So you do have the problem of evil, but I think there's answers for that. Another barrier that people have for 
believing in Jesus is, is and kids, you're going to see this more and more, is science. Okay, if you're in middle school or high school, you've seen this even more. You're going to have teachers, if you're in a public school setting, that are going to say that, look, science has better answers than the Bible. And they're going to try to convince you that evolution explains where we came from, that miracles cannot exist, that, look, you can't really know something unless it can be proven by the scientific method. And listen, I was a science teacher before I was a pastor. And... I'm convinced that science is actually not the problem. Because ultimately, what what is science? Science is just a study of God's world. Science only comes up with data. It's the interpretation of the data that gets messed up. Just like we can misinterpret the Bible, it's very easy to misinterpret the data that we come up with through the scientific process. But here's the thing. I, I believe that if we interpret the Bible correctly and we interpret science correctly, we're going to see cohesion, not contradiction. Uh, I, I mean, when I was studying science a lot uh, as, a, as a teacher, I, it blew me away that there weren't more Christian scientists. As I look at the world and I see how much order there is, I mean, the, the periodic table just blows me away. I mean, how, how everything just lines up so perfectly and, and how much this world is dependent on one another. And, and there's just so much order and there's so much complexity that there's no way that there's not a designer behind it. I mean, if, if you just saw like a, a, an iPhone laying on the ground somewhere, you're not going to look at that iPhone and, and think, gosh, that must have just came together randomly with natural selection and random mutations, right? Okay, there's got to be a design behind it. If there looks like there's a design, there's got to be a designer behind it. And so, yes, science is an issue and it's a problem. It's a barrier for people knowing Jesus, but I think we've got answers for it too. But ultimately, most people don't deny Jesus. Most people don't believe Jesus is the Christ because of science or because of some kind of uh, difficult doctrine that we've got or, or because they had some bad experience in their life as far as like a, the, the problem of evil. It's not a, an intellectual thing for them. It's, it's not that they have just bought into relativism. A lot of people, they, they don't buy into Jesus because they had a bad experience at church. They don't buy into Jesus because they went to a church that just simply wasn't welcoming. They went to a, a church that went through a split or the, the, the pastor went off the deep end. Or maybe they knew somebody that claimed to be a Christian and just treated them horribly. Or maybe they grew up in a, in a home that claimed Christ, but it was legalistic and there was no grace or joy found in it. As a church, we've got an opportunity literally every single day to break misconceptions about Jesus and about, and about the church as we go and we, we, we don't just talk about the gospel, but we live it out. We treat others with love and we, we share not just words with them, but actions. Um, just, in fact, just yesterday, somebody, was, uh, somebody messaged me complaining about this Baptist church that came up to their neighbor's house, knocked on the door, and the neighbor was in the midst of moving. And instead of offering to help 
their neighbor moved, they, they invited him to church and, and, and then just said, hey, I'll, we'll get out of your way so you can get back to what you need to get do, what you're doing. I mean, why? Just help them move. I mean, that's going to that's gonna speak to them way more than trying to invite them to a worship gathering. And it's through that that they're going to be more open to hearing the truths of the gospel. Ultimately, though, the reason that people reject Christ is because their heart is hard. They care little about eternity or the glory of God. And maybe that's you. You came in here this morning and, I mean, you really don't want to be here. You're just here because your parents made you come or you, you just, you're here because you, you know it's the right, you're supposed to be here or you have to be here for some reason. People ultimately reject Christ because their eyes are focused on this world. They've got no desire to submit to Him, to repent of their sins. They want to be in control. And Paul describes people with hard hearts as dead in their sins, sons of disobedience, children of wrath, destined for destruction, enemies of God. And if we're honest, the hard reality is that all of us have been there at one time, if you're not there right now. All of us have had a hard heart. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. See, Jesus says that if you truly want to know me, if you truly want want to trust and to follow me, to be one of my disciples, you've got to be born again. What he means by that is that you've got to have a new heart. God's got to give you a brand new heart. He's got to give you a new set of eyes to, to see with faith. And when that happens, everything in your life changes. When you've got new eyes to see Jesus for who he truly is, you've got a new outlook. You, you've got new desires start popping up in your heart. There, there's a new hunger to know Christ, to want to, to get to know that this is not just a book of rules that this becomes a a love letter that you get to know your Savior. There's a new passion that starts developing in you, a new purpose that you've got for your life. It's not just about achievement anymore. It's about glorifying God. There's a new love and a compassion for others. You you start recognizing, like we talked about in this morning's Bible study, that this time, this this church, it's not just a place that you go, it's not just a, a meeting, but it's a family that's sacred to you. It's the bride of Christ. You get a whole new identity. You're, you're, a, you're a child of God. You're not just a, a sinner who keeps messing up. You're, you're somebody who is loved and cherished by your Savior. You get a new freedom to be able to, to fight sin. You get a new joy and a new peace. You get a new hope that's secure because once Christ has you, he will never let you go. You sing a new song. Your heart rejoices. Your whole life begins to revolve around Christ and his mission. And I recognize this doesn't happen overnight and there's seasons that we go through where we struggle 
with this, but when you, if you truly understand who Christ is and he's changed your heart, if he's given you a new heart, you're going to be different. It's, there's a transformation that starts to happen. Do you, do you see that in your heart? Do you see something different working in you? And go back to our passage. Jesus really reveals to his disciples for the first time what, would, what he would have to go through to give you that new heart. It didn't just come easily. He had to die for it. And it's interesting, he, he says in verse 21, he strictly charges them and commands them to tell nobody about this. And we've talked about this before, so I won't go into detail about this. But remember, it wasn't that he was telling his disciples, never tell anybody ever that I'm the Christ, that I died and I was raised from the dead. But he was saying that, look, you need to wait until the appropriate time, until after the resurrection. That's what he's saying here. That's the point that he's making here. He says in verse 22, that, look, the, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, the, the religious leaders, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Can you imagine being in that moment, hearing this from Jesus as one of the disciples for the first time? He's telling them that, look, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to come back to life. That would blow your mind, I think, to hear that from anybody. But you've seen Jesus bring other people back from the dead. I mean, this is a miraculous moment. This is a, this is a moment in history that would, would transform their lives because they, they would go from just, I think, recognizing that Jesus is a special person to realizing that he's the Christ of God. And I would commend you that, that even the demons understand that and they, they believe that. This is where being born again is so important. That you, you need to, uh, God needs to give you a new heart. You need to, uh, to treasure Christ. You need to see the, the change in your heart happening. And that's proof that God has been working in your heart. The truth is that God has shown us great mercy and grace by sending his own son to be a sacrifice, to pay the penalty that we deserve. That's what we see on the cross. He experienced rejection. He experienced physical death. He experienced more than that, the full blow of God's wrath. He would appease the justice of God in that moment. But praise God that that's not the end of the story. Jesus prophesies, he predicts his own resurrection, that he would rise from the, the grave. That, see, the cross we see, in the cross we see the humanity of Jesus, that he physically died. But in the resurrection we see the deity of Jesus, that, that he showed the power of God to rise from the grave, that he conquered death in that moment. And Jesus promises that if you believe in him, that you will one day experience that same resurrection, that you will be able to live forever with him. Listen carefully. This side of the cross, we live in a time of amazing grace. Ama God has reached out his hand of mercy to us, and he has offered us forgiveness of sins. He's offered to us eternal life. That he, he's offered to us that one day we will be able to see him face to face. But that hand of mercy will not last forever. There will be a day, and Jesus promises that he will return, 
And that day of mercy will be over and there will be a day of judgment. And on that day, the choice will no longer be yours. On that day, the, the choice will be made for you. And you will be cast away from God and from Jesus forever. If you have not believed in him. This is why it's so important to answer the question, who is Jesus? Do not wait to answer that question. If you've got questions about that, wrestle with them. Get them answered. Because I guarantee you, on that day, you are not going to be wanting to look back over your life and say, gosh, I wish that I would have taken more time to figure this out. I wish I would have taken time to get those questions answered. You don't want to be caught on judgment day not knowing for sure the answer to this question, who is Jesus? Every other regret in your, in your life on that day will pale in comparison. Now, on the other hand, maybe, maybe God has been working in your, your life. Maybe God has, has been moving in your heart, and you've seen God starting to transform your heart to, to treasure Him, and to, that you want to know Him more. You really believe that Jesus is the Christ of God, that you really believe that He is who he says he is, that he's the Savior, that he's the one that actually did suffer and die for your sins. And that you recognize that you're a sinner, that you've rebelled against God, that you deserve the wrath of God, and you realize that, that Jesus is your only hope and that his promises to save you are true. If that's you, listen, becoming a Christian is not difficult. There's no magic words you have to say. There's no magic prayer that you have to pray you just simply turn from your sins and lean on Him, trust in Him, rely fully on Him for salvation. And if you've done that, man, you can celebrate because Christ will never let you go. And you should tell somebody about it. Listen, don't, th this is what Paul says in Romans 10. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that, that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. It, listen, if you've trusted in Christ, but you've never told anybody about it, it's like having a baby, but not telling anybody about it. It's, it's like winning the Super Bowl and never telling anybody about it, but it's like infinitely greater than any of that. You've got to tell somebody. In fact, I would encourage you, if you're, uh, if you're here today and you're, you're a child and you you've trusted in Christ, talk to your parents about that. If you're here as a guest, tell somebody that you came with about that. You can talk to me about that. But tell somebody. And if you've never been baptized, I would challenge you, be baptized. Talk to us about getting baptized. Being baptized, there's no magic in the water. It doesn't save you. But Jesus commands us to be baptized because baptism, baptism is the way that we proclaim to the world that we have a new life in Christ. And so you don't do it to be saved. You do it out of obedience to Christ. And then lastly, if you've been baptized and you're a believer, let me challenge you to ask that same question to somebody that you know that doesn't know Christ. Ask them, who do you say Jesus is? This week, I, in fact, I would encourage you, write down a name of somebody that you need to ask. That, that's a powerful question to ask somebody. Who do you think Jesus is? Like, who do you say Jesus is? 
You never know, maybe that one question could change their whole eternity. Let's pray. Father, gosh, there are so many times where we try to put you into a box and say something about you that is just not true. We, we try to make you something that you're not. And I pray that you would help us know you for who you truly are. I pray that you would help us fall deeply in love with you as we grow in knowledge of who you are, that you would give us a hunger and a passion to get to know you, that we, it would drive us to, to just dig into your word, and that through that, we would find a joy that is not based on circumstances, but is based on a relationship with you, on your character, on what you've done for us, and on what you've promised us. And we thank you for this morning where you've reminded us through your word and through song, and here in a minute through communion, who you are and what you've sacrificed so that we can live for eternity with you. I pray that you would continue to work in our hearts. That if, are though, if there are those in this room that have not confessed you as Lord publicly, that you would give them the courage to do that, that you would move in their hearts in such a way that they would be overwhelmed by your grace and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, once again, we get to celebrate